turn to Ecclesiastes. We're back there again today. And let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, as we come to this day, this morning, this gathering together, Lord, to worship you and to hear from you, we're reminded of the fact that even though the book that we're about to look into is somewhat dismal on, a, on some level, that you are the one who rules and reigns. God, help us to see our place in the universe, our place under the sun, so to speak, and the purpose for which you've placed us here. May we line on, up underneath your lordship and allow your Holy Spirit to do his work in us today. Open our eyes that we might see and our ears to hear. Let us receive your truth with joy and with a willingness to obey. Give us insight and illumination, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The first two verses of Ecclesiastes in chapter 1 says, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Scott was only 26 years old when he died. And although he grew up in a Christian home during his teens and early 20s, he went through a period of rebellion and spiritual searching. His life changed when the doctors discovered a brain tumor. Surgery brought a brief remission, but then the cancer returned. And as the months passed, his faith increased even as his physical condition worsened. He began to seek the Lord as never before. And the Word of God became sweet to him. He became bold in his witness, especially to his many friends, and he asked God to use him to reach others so that he could point people to Christ no matter how long he lived. God answered that request, but several months later, Scott died. During the funeral, his younger sister talked about how much she loved him, and as a young girl, she wanted to be like him and how exasperating that he could be at times. Then the cancer came, and she saw such a difference, so profound that it changed everything. Her brother, she said, had figured out what life was all about. Then she said this, life is nothing without God. Scott had shown her that it doesn't matter how long you live or how much money you have or even how well you do in your career, his faith at the end spoke one simple message, life is nothing without God. When I stood up to deliver the message a few minutes later, the author says, I didn't have to say very much. I simply repeated what she said one more time, life is nothing without God. I then made this simple application. 
If you live for 80 years but don't discover that truth, you've missed the very reason for your own existence. If you should earn a million dollars, $10 million, and have hundreds of friends in the praise of your contemporaries, if you have all that but don't figure out this basic truth, you're still in spiritual kindergarten. Life is nothing without God. Everything else is just details. Your career, your education, your degrees, your money, your fame, your accomplishments, your long-range goals, your dreams, your possessions, your friendships, they're all just details. And if you don't figure out that God is the central truth of the universe, you will spend your days mired in details, drifting along with no clear purpose whatsoever. That's the ultimate vanity that causes life to be meaningless. Have you discovered what life is all about? Life is nothing without God. Everything else is just details. This is the pinnacle of truth as we climb to the summit of the book of Ecclesiastes as we work our way through excerpts from Ecclesiastes, like reading the last page of a novel before you even begin the first chapter, the words that I just spoke unveil the summum bonum of our existence, the axiom of ultimate importance, the singular and overriding principle of our quest for meaning. Life is nothing without God. Last week, I began a short series entitled Excerpts from Ecclesiastes. In our first excerpt taken from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, we encounter Solomon's intense frustration with his search for existential understanding as he sets out to scale the Everests of life's meaning. His conclusion so far after last week is our efforts at solving life's riddle of meaning are absolutely useless. Look at chapter 1, verses 12 through 18 one more time. Let me read it for you. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I've seen all the works which I have, done, have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, behold... I've magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a great wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I realized that this also is striving after wind, because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. As we saw last time, most of us resonate totally with his frustration. We long to make some kind of sense out of our lives. This, there is this annoying, dull ache in our souls, isn't there? Driving us to look for some purpose, some, some meaning to our existence. So we seek and we search and we hope against hope that we'll uncover the answer to our unanswerable questions. And yet, as I suggested last week... Unless our horizons are somehow broadened from under the sun to include something beyond the realm of this earth, the search will end where we left Solomon after last week's message, in utter despair. What we need is another perspective. 
Some time ago, I recall reading a letter that a college student wrote to her parents. She wrote, Dear Mom and Dad, I have so much to tell you. It's been so long since we've communicated. Because of the fire in my dorm set off by the student riots, I experienced temporary lung damage and had to go to the hospital. And while I was there, I fell in love with an orderly. And we've moved in together. I dropped out of school when I found out I was pregnant, and he got fired because of his drinking, so we're going to move to Alaska where we might get married after the birth of the baby, maybe. Signed, your loving daughter. P.S. None of that really happened, but I did flunk my chemistry class, (laughs) and I wanted you to keep it in perspective. Perspective is what all of us need. See? We need to view our lives from the perspective of God's wisdom, not man's wisdom. Because as we begin to see last time, human wisdom makes a weak foundation. Last time we traced Solomon's journey in this text through two stages. Let me review them for you. In verse 12, Solomon introduced himself to us as an honest seeker. Look at verses 12 and 13 again. Solomon says, I set my mind to seek and explore. He observed life broadly because of who he was as the king of Jerusalem in Israel Israel and Jerusalem, son of David and possessor of unmatched human wisdom, which God bestowed on him. Solomon had this opportunity to observe life from a myriad of colorful angles. And so he investigated life broadly and meticulously, verse 13 said, he set his mind to explore everything under heaven. Everything. He investigated it personally, we saw. It wasn't enough to simply learn from the mistakes of others around him. He had to experiment with everything himself. And in the final analysis, Solomon concludes right there, It is a grievous task, in verse 13, which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. Yet, as we saw last time, right there at the end of verse 13, Solomon opens up a door to a little understanding for us. Note it. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men. And I called this last time deliberately induced frustration. Remember that? God has given this grievous search to the sons of Adam, and it was introduced after Adam's fall that God did it. He did it on purpose. The human heart has been dissatisfied and frustrated since we left the Garden of Eden. Is that right? Why? Because God put that frustration there after the fall so that The search for fulfillment might lead us to realize that nothing on earth can replace what only heaven can provide. Life is nothing without God. And Solomon's search proves it as he moves from an honest seeker into the second stage we looked at, a hopeless skeptic, verses 14 and 15. He concludes in verse 15, what is crooked cannot be straightened, what is lacking cannot be counted. That's what life in the world is like to the hopeless skeptic. It's a twisted and messed up place and there's a glaring lack of resources for us to do anything about it. How often do you struggle with that mindset? 
That frustration causes so many people to become hopeless skeptics and cynics. But this really should not drive us to despair. It should drive us somewhere else. It should drive us to God. And the point is that our inability to straighten out what is crooked or count on what is not there is often the perfect context for God to show himself, and he often does. And faith makes all the difference in your perspective. Jesus, when he walked under the sun, proved that crooked lives, limbs, and outlooks and attitudes can be straightened when faith is involved in the process. Someone said, and I ended with this last time, you cannot explain the world from the standpoint of the world. The answer needs to come from somewhere else. Our search for answers will always lead to despair until our search leads us finally to God. When we remove Jesus Christ from the pursuit, we're headed for ultimate disaster, and you become nothing more than what Solomon describes in the last three verses of this chapter, where we're going to pick it up today. He becomes a hapless survivor. Look at verse 16. I said to myself, behold, I've magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to no wisdom and no madness and folly and realized that this is also striving after wind. You know what this text spells? Despair. D-E-S-P-A-I-R. Despair. He's got it all, but he's in despair. Solomon had it all. And if anyone had the resources to solve the puzzle of life and its meaning, Solomon did. Yet in the end, it didn't matter, did it? What he knew was not enough. All his advantages as king proved worthless in the pursuit. It's an odd thing, isn't it, that the modern existentialist philosophy of despair originated in Paris, one of the most beautiful, wealthy, and expanding cities in the world at the time. I've read that Walker Percy in his book of essays, The Message in a Bottle, explains that despair arises out of circumstances of plenty rather than deprivation. You do not detect despair in the writings of Solzhenitsyn, Viktor Frankl, or Fox's Book of Martyrs, as Philip Yancey wrote, existential despair did not germinate in the hellholes of Auschwitz or Siberia, but rather in the cafes of Paris, the coffee shops of Copenhagen, and the luxury palaces of Beverly Hills, unquote. When I read the Old Testament, I do not detect meaninglessness, despair in the shadows of David's caves. But only here, in the glory of Solomon's palace. The mood of these verses is so akin to that of our own society. We consistently hear that better technology and increased education will solve our problems, but history has proven otherwise. We now have smarter criminals and younger girls getting pregnant. What has been developed for good has also enlarged our ability to perpetrate evil. Listen to the poignant words of Malcolm Muggeridge and see if you agree. 
He says the result is almost invariably the exact opposite of what's intended. Thus, expanding public education has served to increase illiteracy. Half a century of pacifist agitation has resulted in the two most ferocious and destructive wars of history. Political egalitarianism has made for a heightened class consciousness. And sexual freedom has led to erotomania on a scale hitherto undreamed of, unquote. Another writer laments, most of our problems have come about ironically because of our desire to progress, to improve, to make life better. And at the end of the 19th century, it looked as if science and technology would cure disease, banish pain, and allow us to live like kings. But the progress up till now that brought us dishwashers and salt vaccines also brought us nuclear weapons, global warming, and carcinogens without number, unquote. Verse 17 again. I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I realized that this also is striving after wind. Because in much wisdom there is much grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Why is it that we who have so much are so unhappy most of the time in this country? Why is that? Because it's chronic. Across the country and in every church, it happens when we choose to not be content with God and Him alone. Philip Yancey tells of his older brother who went in search of answers in attempting to break the shackles of a confining Christian upbringing. He writes, in an attempt to break the shackles of a confining upbringing in a Christian faith, he went on a grand quest for freedom trying on worldviews like changes of clothes. Pentecostalism, atheistic existentialism, Buddhism, New Age spirituality, Thomistic rationalism. He joined the flower children of the 1960s, growing his hair long and wearing granny glasses, living communally, experimenting with sex and drugs. For a time, he sent me exuberant reports of his new life. Eventually, however, a darker side crept in. I had to bail him out of jail when an LSD trip went bad. He broke relations with every other person in the family and burned through several marriages. I got late-night suicide calls. Watching my brother, he says, I learned that apparent freedom can actually mask deep bondage, a cry from the heart of unmet needs. The most musically gifted person I have ever known he says, ended up tuning pianos, not playing them on a concert stage. I saw up close the destructive power of casting off faith with nothing to take its place. Let me say that again. I saw up close the destructive power of casting off faith with nothing to take its place. Solomon says that in much wisdom there is much grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Every human advancement creates a new set of problems. 
more questions, more need for answers, more need for God. You see, the more we know, the more we realize the burdens of knowing. And the more pain we incur, and it started at the tree in the Garden of Eden. Humanity's fall was the result of desiring more fruit, more what? Knowledge. And the attainment of it caused us to run away from God. Now, don't misunderstand me. Expanding our knowledge base is not wrong. I am not advocating that, to, to not study or to not educate yourself. But it must always be viewed in the right relationship with the one from whom all wisdom and knowledge comes. True wisdom is not about learning more things. It's about renewing a relationship, a relationship with God, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Job chapter 28. Just turn in your Bibles to Job for a moment. If anybody learned the hard way, he did. Job chapter 28, look at verses 12 and 13. But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. Should underline those, Job 28, 12, and 13. Let's skip down to verse 20. Where then does wisdom come from, and where is the place of understanding? Thus is it, it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, with our ears we have heard a report of it. God understands its way, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure, when he set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt, then he saw it and declared it, and he established it and also searched it out. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Solomon knew those words. He knew those words intimately. They were familiar words to him. He recorded them in Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10 and other places in the book of Proverbs, which scholars believe he wrote before Ecclesiastes. Yet he somehow lost sight of those words. Reading Proverbs back to back with the book of Ecclesiastes, you would have to wonder how the same man could have written both books. Two more contrasting views of wisdom could not be imagined. In the end, Solomon would again point us to the fear of God as the ultimate answer, but with much less passion than in his younger years when he walked with the Lord, when he first became king. Let me ask you a question. If you are a believer, have you forgotten what true wisdom is? As you get more and more toward your older years, for some of you, are you losing your passion like Solomon did? Are you becoming more cynical, more skeptical? 
How's your relationship with God? The Apostle Paul reminded us that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, all that we seek culminate in the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2 in the New Testament, in the first four verses. Paul writes, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea, for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this that no one of you or no one will delude you with persuasive argument. God's mystery, that is Christ himself. You know, mystery is an unsettling concept, especially to Protestants. Protestants have no place for mystery, it seems like. If there is, it's a very small place and one we feel confident that can be explained in time, given enough scrutiny. Catholics are much better at this, I think, writes Ken Geyer, and I agree with him. Mystery is something that not only they make a place for, but kneel before. Unlike them, Protestants have an almost obsessive compulsive need for clarity which is not so much a theological need as it is a psychological need. I think we feel that if we can somehow connect all the dots in life in some kind of cause and effect manner, that life can be managed and made safe for us and for those we love. But the universe, mark this now, the universe cannot be managed or made safe, not by us anyway. When we lose a sense of mystery, we lose a sense of our place in the universe. And leaving that place, we leave behind a humility that is attendant to that place. Mystery, ambiguity, uncertainty, these are places where where we reach an end of ourselves, folks. Places we have to stop and take off our shoes. Because if we don't, the mystery the ambiguity and the uncertainty will one day prove too much for us. Ken concludes, if we must have all of our questions unanswered, uh, answered before we can go forward in our relationship with God, there will come a day when we will not go forward anymore. In the meantime, we're surrounded by mystery, and we need to learn to live with it. When we learn to live with mystery and unanswered questions, when we go on asking and seeking and knocking, content not to find every answer, we begin to break out of this under-the-sun despair that Solomon was in. We can live every moment with a sense of expectancy and awe in the presence of God. Instead of emptiness and despair, there is wonder and joy. The choice is really yours and mine. Like Solomon, we can move from honest seeker to hopeless skeptic or hapless survivor, or like Job, 
we can instead find ourselves in the way of true wisdom as a humble worshiper. And that's what we need to be. After all of his suffering and searching for answers, Job, his conclusion was of a very different tenor than Solomon's conclusion. Job chapter 42, in verses 2 to 6. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation for you. I just finished reading the book of Job again, and it never ceases to amaze me. This conclusion takes me by surprise every time, and I love it. Job says, I know, speaking to God, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? Job says, it is I, and I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes, and I take back everything that I said. And I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Isn't that a great conclusion? So much different than Solomon's. Listen, friends, as author Ken Geyer put it again, God doesn't ask us to figure out our salvation with confidence and certainty. No, no. He asks us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Living the questions is part of the way that we do that. Our unanswered questions are the grappling hooks with which we scale the north face of God, who seems at times to be an Everest of indifference. But the ascent is treacherous, and maybe why we brave the climb is because we sense that abandoning that climb might be even more treacherous. In the words of C.S. Lewis, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You yourself are the answer. Before your face, questions die away. You see, Solomon couldn't see anything past the sun, S-U-N. He wasn't even looking past there. He was coming from a horizontal, strictly human viewpoint As Chuck Swindoll puts it, he left God completely out of the picture. In almost every section of this book, in this journal of his, he refers to life under the sun. You can't get satisfaction solely from an existence under the sun. Not without a meaningful connection with God, who is above the sun. Jesus said, for what shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What advantage is there? What profit is there? Of what value is life without God in the picture? Solomon answers that question. Nothing. It's of no value. It shall profit him nothing. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He got that one right. Without God, it is. Each of us has within himself or herself the same frustration that Solomon is referring to throughout his search. How many of us would deny that fact? 
In fact, all of creation has this frustration. Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. It'll be on the screen for you. For the creation, Paul writes, was subjected to frustration. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Who's that? God. He subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. I like the way one man explains it. He says, the picture here is of God subjecting creation to frustration. God knew that after the fall, we would try to set up other gods, try to give our lives to the pursuit of pleasure or wealth or power or status. And so he said that one of the results of the fall would be that none of those things would be able to bring us soul satisfaction. Our pursuit of them would always involve a measure of discontent and discouragement and disappointment. But he did this, Paul said in that text, in hope. Did you catch those two words? God's hope is that we'll stop searching for infinite satisfaction from finite objects. His hope is that frustration will once more cause the prodigal son to stop rooting around in the pig trough and return to the father. His hope is that the day will dawn when we realize that we can't get no satisfaction no matter how hard we try and try and try and that we would come home instead. Frustration in this sense is a kind of gift. It's one of the forms God's love takes for people who might otherwise throw their lives away in trivial pursuits. Pursue above all the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Jesus said. And everything else will be thrown in the bargain. Apart from this, everything else is a trivial pursuit. Again, C.S. Lewis once said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. That's a profound statement. Hundreds of years before Christ, the prophet Isaiah gives the invitation to us. In Isaiah 55, verses 2 and 3, he asks this question. Why do you spend money for what's not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. God says, listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. I like the end of verse 2, which says, eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. The King James Version says it this way, let your soul delight itself in fatness. Make no mistake about it, folks. This is no low-fat, low-sodium soybean substitute that he's talking about here. As one author says, the Bible is decidedly pro-fat. Yay. Mountain Dew and Susie Q's. Yes. The truth of the matter is what Isaiah wants us to grasp here is that God is our true bread. 
God's our true bread. Jesus was sent from heaven to be the bread of life, our bread of life. Living life under the sun, S-O-N, is our only hope for complete satisfaction in the human heart. In John chapter 6, beginning in verse 33, Jesus says these very difficult words to a crowd of people that are waiting to eat some food. He said, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And then he said to them, they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. They're still thinking physical food. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. You see, Jesus, who once spoke worlds into being, knew the frustration of presenting the gift of his words to people who refused to hear them. He knew the frustration of longing to impart the gift of forgiveness to people who refused to repent, longing to grant healing to people who refused to believe longing to give community and gather together like a mother hen, little chicks who refused to be gathered. Jesus knew the frustration of throwing a banquet to which guests refused to come, pouring wine that they would not drink, bringing bread that they would not eat. And at the end, he knew the frustration of the cross, what he knew to be the ultimate gift the world made into the ultimate attempt to thwart the will and work of God. But Jesus' frustration was bathed in hope. For the cross, which was meant to frustrate the purpose of God by Satan, became its final expression and guarantee. The miracle of God's love is that he should become a human being and work as a carpenter and grow hungry and tired and weak and should teach and even cry for you and for me. For in the end, the story of God's love for the world is the story of a pursuit that is trivial no longer. Not after God became a man. Not after a cross. And I want you to think about these words that I just said to you. That Jesus knew how much he knew the frustration of trying to minister to people like us. And in that text that I referred to in John chapter 6, when Jesus stood up and he told them that he was the bread of life, he said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood if you're going to have life within you. And he said, these words are spiritual words. What he's getting at is you must put yourself entirely in me and put me entirely in you. Otherwise, you have no life. No life. Life is nothing without God. And at the end of that text in John chapter 6, it said that many, many of his followers left him because the words that he was speaking were too hard. My question to you this morning as we go to this table is will you leave him too? When he makes hard demands on our lives? When he tells us that our pursuit 
of happiness under the sun on this earth is not all it's cracked up to be. That all the things that we scratch for and that we strive after and that we get frustrated with are not the answer. And when he says, I'm the answer and all you need is me, will you leave him? Or will you say like Peter, you have the words of eternal life, Master. Where else could I possibly go? And that's what this table is all about today. So let's take a moment and sit quietly and think about these things. And if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then let's partake of this table together, remembering that this sacrifice is what promises us and guarantees us eternal life for those who put their faith in Christ. It's a representation of that. And if you haven't done that yet, now's a good time to seriously think about doing it.